This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today is April 10th, 2012, and our guest is Mary Gordon. Mary is recognized internationally as an award-winning social entrepreneur, an educator, author, child advocate, and parenting expert who has created programs informed by the power of empathy. In 1996, she founded Roots of Empathy, which now offers programs in Canada, New Zealand, the United States, the Isle of Man, the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland, and Scotland. In 2005, Mary created the Seeds of Empathy program. Among her many honors, too many for us to name here, she is a member of the Order of Canada and an Ashoka Fellow. To date, Mary's programs have reached over 450,000 children around the world. Mary uh, is also the founder of Canada's first and largest school-based parenting and family, family literacy centers, which she initiated in 1981. They have become public policy in Ontario with hundreds of schools involved. They have been used as a best practice model internationally. Uh, her 2005 Canadian bestseller, Roots of Empathy, Changing the World Child by Child, was ranked as one of the top 100 books of the year by the Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper. She's a recipient of the Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal for her outstanding commitment to education. Mary, it's truly an honor to have you as our guest today. Thank you, Paul. Good to be with you. Um, as you know, we are conducting a series of podcast interviews profiling Ashoka Fellows engaged in the empathy movement. And in many ways, you are a founder and a pioneer of that movement. I have heard you say something interesting that empathy can't be taught, but it can be caught. And I wonder if you could begin by just telling us how you help children to catch empathy through your programs, uh, Roots of Empathy and Seeds of Empathy. Sure. And uh, my uh, statement about empathy not being uh, taught but caught really refers to the challenge of the traditional uh, teaching methodologies in schools, which are more instruction-based rather than construction-based. And um, the way we set up Roots of Empathy is on an experiential basis, bringing an infant and a parent into one classroom to visit over the school year. We... Um, train an outside instructor, somebody who isn't a classroom teacher, and there's a method to the madness there. We are valuing the classroom teacher as having huge impact on the children's lives by being in relationship with them. And we want the classroom teacher to be able to be part of the Roots of Empathy program, observing the lessons and observing what's happening with their children. So the instructor uh, for the Roots of Empathy program arrives with a full curriculum and there's a training program of four days and there's an ongoing mentoring program. So that the week before this little family comes to visit, there is a class that's preparing the students for the visit. And the week after, there is a reflective class. So that most of the instruction in the, the pre and the post, which is closer mirroring of traditional instruction in school, 
but it all relates specifically to the um, the interactions with the baby and the parent and the children uh, around the family visit. And this visit happens uh, in the classroom. A green blanket is rolled out and the children gather around the green blanket. And the, uh, the way the instructor works with the children is to ask questions. What do you notice? What do you think? How do you imagine the baby is feeling? So basically they are learning to take the perspective of the baby and that is the cognitive aspect of empathy. And they are also being guided in observing what they think the baby is feeling. And little babies' bodies really are like a theater of emotion. <laughs> they can't walk or talk, but they emote fully and without lenses. You always know if a baby is happy or unhappy. We don't always know what makes them unhappy, but we always know if something's wrong. So the children are guided in observing the nuances of the baby's facial expression, their their auditory, um, whatever they happen to gurgle, coo, cry, uh, whatever their contribution might make, and their body language. Where are they looking? Um, all of these kinds of things, the children become acutely aware of the emotional cues of a baby, and they learn the language of the baby's feelings so that we say they're learning emotional literacy. And the affective aspect of empathy is emotion. So the program teaches the two, the cognitive and affective contributions of the package of empathy. Mm. And um, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Wonderful. Something that I love about your work is that you have avoided getting stuck on definitions of empathy. And I think it's in part by focusing on this ideal of empathy that's exhibited in the relationship between the mother and the infant. And I wonder if you could talk about that ideal. What is it that we learn that's unique from that relationship? And why are relationships so primary in helping us to master empathy? Well, I think I, I, I love, David, that you asked me about relationships because in the speed of life, I think we so often forget who we are, what makes us who we are, and what can bring us back to who we are. And, you know, in real estate, we talk about location, location, location. In life and in learning and in empathy, it's all about relationship, relationship, relationship. We are an eighthly predisposed to empathy and empathy either flowers or fades in that first relationship in a baby's life the the attachment relationship it's usually with the mother if there's a dad there and the dad is present the baby's very fortunate to have two attachment relationships and in many cultures babies have multiple attachment relationships but the primary relationship is what we work with. And that is a relationship of attunement. And to be perfectly understood, to be sensed, to be known, to be in a symbiotic emotional soup, that's what empathy is, to mm. understand how the other feels. And a parent who has been raised empathically knows how to understand how the baby feels. So the baby feels known and the baby develops beautifully and the baby then becomes empathic. So, you know, one of the things that I really looked at in my motivation for setting up Roots of Empathy 
was this relationship of attachment that you asked me about. Because mm. I had worked for many, many years with families who struggled with domestic violence, with child abuse and neglect. And um, in those families, um, nobody really was a monster. The world might have seen some of these parents as monsters, but really they weren't. They were doing the best they could with the deal they were given. And the deal they were given did not include empathy. The common denominator I found in all of that suffering was the absence of empathy. Mm. So Roots of Empathy is about um, using that attachment relationship as a vehicle for children to catch empathy because mirror neurons are at work here. Children are having the opportunity to see, feel, taste, smell what love looks like. Mm. And that first relationship of um, attunement, I think, is the, the biggest word that you are able to emotionally attune to the baby. Um, is something that when little children are coached, and I'm talking about in Roots of Empathy, it's children who are five years old, if that's when kindergarten starts, up to grade eight, and that's usually about 12 or 13, or it's different ages in other countries. In Germany, we're, we're not working with children as old as that because they go to high school at that age. But in Seeds of Empathy, which I'll tell you about in a bit, we're working with uh, three to five-year-olds in child care. Mm. We still work with the attachment relationship. There's not a three-year-old that breathes that doesn't understand this. And sometimes at three, they understand it better than 13. So that attachment relationship that you ask about is the relationship that forms the template for every other relationship in life. Mm. We often speak about our partners as significant other in our life. Well, a lot of their ability to understand us, to empathize with us, to know where we are emotionally and to join us, to have the ability to join us, is a result of that attachment relationship. Now, it's never too late to get it going. And Roots of Empathy isn't targeted to children who are devoid of empathy. It's universal. But in any classroom of children, you are guaranteed to have Many children who are dealing with emotional shrapnel, who did not have, through nobody's fault, um, a good attachment relationship and are suffering as a result of it. One of the things I've heard you say that I thought was just so uh, provocative, you were asked a, about a definition of empathy and you, de you, you defined it as breathing with the same lungs as somebody else. I thought that was such a visceral um, definition that for me captured this element of affect that is combined with the cognitive element of perspective taking, that it's not simply seeing the world through somebody else's eyes or understanding their perspective, but there's something very visceral about uh, occupying their shoes and feeling the life within them. That is so figured in the relationship between the mother and the child. One of the things that I've also heard you talk about is how you say, well, empathy is innate, but it can wither. Uh, on the vine. And I think we all, all of us who work with adults, unfortunately, see sometimes that process. And I wonder if you could talk about what is it um, in the culture that takes, that, that weakens that template as we grow up? And, and then what can we do uh, to nurture and strengthen that rather than have it atrophy? I think if we look at cultures in terms of how they define themselves, who is God? Mm-hmm. Is it technology? Is it money? Is it position? 
or is it um, more neighborhood, family-based? Is it more community-based? Is it more faith-based? What is it? And I think one of the things that I've been very interested in quietly observing over the decades is the whole notion in North America we have about children being raised to be independent. Mm. And um, I've also been very cognizant of a growing pandemic of loneliness in children. Mm. And of course, we hear from children in Roots of Empathy, we hear their heartfelt feelings. We hear them through their drawings. We hear them through their poetry. We hear them through the rap music they write for the baby. We hear them through their um, their dialogues, which are so full of, of faith that they won't be exposed or teased, that they will be listened to and respected and treated um, lovingly in their classrooms when they speak about their unfettered feelings. But this whole idea of, in North America, the god of independence being um, able to function on your own, I feel it's a misnomer. Mm. I feel we've gone off course. Um, you know, we all fall in love with our babies. We all try to make them a little bit independent so that they can get on without us. But cultures where there is a, a greater valuing of the interdependent contributions of one to the other are generally happier people. And uh, on any dimension that you want to measure success, they generally do better. Mm. No, on your deathbed, you ask someone, what is a successful life? Or ask them when they're 25, what is a successful life? And if there's an incongruence between those answers, we know our society is maybe valuing things that are not going to be so important at the end of your life. Independence, who cares at the end of your life? Right. No, it doesn't matter if you learn to cross the street at six without holding someone's hand. Does it matter if you keep a stiff upper lip? Really, I think the piece that is so crucial is developing a capacity to share our feelings and to connect to other people's feelings or we will be emotional islands for life. Mm. And we socialize our girls and boys differently in North America pretty well in many parts of Europe as well. So that little girls have many more opportunities to know and practice what it is to be in a relationship. I don't believe that little girls innately are any more empathic than little boys. It's just that they have many more opportunities culturally to be interdependent, to have a best friend and confidant, to be um, closely connected. Little boys have more pressure to be independent, to no pain, no gain philosophy. And um, I just wonder if we are focused so much on our technology that we allow it to eclipse our humanity, that we're not mindful of how much time our children or our youth spend on screens versus in relationship. And um, this whole idea of society and our, the choices we make and how difficult it is for individuals in society to offer a counterpoint to the main um, culture. So 
I think in Roots of Empathy, a lot of what we are valuing and nurturing sometimes is discordant with the broader society. And people often say, well, you know, if children become empathic, are they not going to have more pain in a society that's not empathic? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, absolutely uh, think that the more, the greater the capacity we have to feel, we have the capacity to feel more joy and also to feel more pain, which makes us, us really exquisitely human. Is that not what we're here on the world for? To be human beings, not to be automatons. Yes. I've heard you talk about the importance as we look at spreading the empathy movement of families and schools. And we know that families are a primary place in which children learn empathy, but then we recognize that the school system is such an important corollary to that. And you've just been speaking, I think, very eloquently about some of the reasons in our culture that we don't succeed in promoting empathy. And one of the things I've heard you mention is this thing about in school, the way our curricula sometimes divides the mind from the body and the mind from the heart. And I wonder if you could talk about your vision of how a school system, what does a school system look like when it does a better job of integrating those things? What have you seen that uh, is leading the way to a school system that promotes the kind of social and emotional learning that builds empathy? I think when schools um, meet with all the adults in the building and um, I I don't mean just the teachers. I mean the administration. I mean whoever is the voice on the phone when you call the school to say my child is sick. I mean whoever it is who keeps the school clean. That there is a culture within a school. And if the school decides together how they want to treat children, that is a different discussion from what do we value in terms of helping our children understand um, the the basic subject areas or understand citizenship. If we don't display citizen-like good citizenship amongst all of the adults in the building, if we are uh, inclusive and include all the adults in the building, saying that they really make a difference to the ambience or the environment that the children, the air they breathe in the building, uh, that's, number one, a very good indication of how adults are valued. Children watch, observe, and smell a phony a mile away. Mm. If, we, if we set up a structure that we have on the school's website, we value A, B, C, and D, and the children who walk the halls see disrespect or unequal respect for, un, for different levels of um, professionalism, or academic prowess, the children know it's a lie. So I think we have to be authentic in the decisions we make. Little children spend five hours and more a day, five days a week, you know, 10 months a year in school. It is a huge socializing influence on them. Yes, it is where they learn their academic subjects, but it's also where they learn life. And although the family is the primary influencer, and we can have, if children are lucky enough to be in other significant groups, like a specific cultural group or a faith-based group or whatever uh, group they are in that can influence them one way or the other, the fact that they are in school 
like it or lump it, is a major influence. So you mentioned social emotional learning. A school can decide that the whole child needs an education and that it is not just the mind that they are teaching. In fact, when you look at just the mind, you're not you're still including social emotional if you're looking at academics that's even a narrower focus and uh, what we know about focusing on the whole child is that the child needs to feel relatively safe relatively happy in order to learn a lonely brain does not learn mm. worried brain does not learn a brain that's wired for defensive reaction. A child, for example, who might be afraid of being embarrassed or bullied. A child who's worried that when they go home, there's going to be a row that's one of the parents will be drinking, whatever. Schools really need to make partnerships with families to come together and say, this is what you we believe. This is what we are trying to achieve with the children here. And I think there's such, particularly in the United States, there's such enormous pressures on teachers and schools to teach to the test that it's barbaric and abusive to the children. Mm. Not that anyone is intending it, but the children are lost in the, the wake of the, the race to the top. And I think this whole notion of um, pressuring grade results, that a child is more than the measure of their reading result and their mathematics result. And quite honestly, we know that the the child's um, social and emotional ranking at grade three is a better predictor of their grade eight academic results than are their, their reading and math scores at grade three. So, you know, the poor teachers don't have much they can do about this in the United States because it's a fact. I think what is heroic is schools that band together and say, we have all the research, we know the evidence. Children who are fully supported in all domains of development, including social and emotional. Children who are listened to, respected, and taken seriously. Children who are fearless learners, not cowering, um, wondering, is my answer going to be right? Will I be humiliated or will the teacher be disappointed in me? There are all sorts of things we know that are precursors to optimal learning. They are not at play in most American schools. So, um, you know, we have research, but policies are not made on research. There are tomes of available research to tell us the best way to proceed with children. We tend to ignore them and take the shortcut uh, that might work for one year. And that's kind of like gerrymandering house building if you don't build a very good um, basement and structure framework for your building if you just add on a room here and there the whole um, building is going to be faulty so I really uh, think it's an important discussion to have where are the schools that are thinking about this in a holistic way where are the schools that are child advocates not just great advocates. Right. Where are the schools that are advocates for their teachers <laughs> and are helping their teachers be courageous enough to teach the whole child? So it's uh, what I should say is don't get me started. <laughs> 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 you know, originally I was a classroom teacher right. and I have been an early childhood educator as well and I have been a parenting educator. So, and I have been an educator of teachers at the university level. 
Right. So these are all my buds, if you believe. You know, if you want to look at it that way, I don't feel criticism for any of those groups. I have enormous respect for teachers. They have increasingly complex jobs. Right. I think there is no job under the sun that is more important than being a parent. I think, um, you know, we have the best complement of players to create an empathic society when we go to schools. And, um, you know, if we include the families in this. So I think it's the right conversation to be having. So powerful, just this idea that we have to create institutions that sincerely model empathy among the adults. And then that really, as you say, that these schools will either their school, our school systems are either going to be a place where empathy atrophies or they're going to be a place where it flourishes. And we, we can't expect that to happen by accident. We have to continue to focus on it. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Mary Gordon of Roots of Empathy. I'd like to take us in a slightly broader direction. I know that you've been just instrumental in the whole work that Ashoka has been doing in terms of the whole worldwide effort to tip the world, as Bill Drayton likes to say, uh, towards empathy. And there are these very powerful connections between empathy and some of the toughest problems that we're facing in the world, conflict resolution, altruism, problem solving. We've talked a bit about empathy in families and schools, which are obviously two very key audiences. I wonder if you could comment a little bit on some of these other systems in which empathy is critical in effectiveness. And let's talk for a bit about the justice system. I know that's something that you've spent time thinking about. And what does a justice system look like when it shows compassion? And what would be, where, where do we need to go in that arena? Well, I think our justice systems are fraught with mental health issues which are mismanaged. Um, I I think that the idea that anybody who is involved with any sort of power in the justice system really needs to be introduced to an understanding of how criminality develops. And um, the idea that um, a criminal isn't born genetically, but a criminal pretty pretty regularly, actually, when you look at the research, and sociopaths completely. A criminal is a series of um, life's accidents, um, starting with the attachment relationship. And those who are violent 
are typically those who were incubated in violence. So um, for uh, those who hold power in the criminal justice system to understand the roots of violence, criminality of any kind, it is an important thing. The, the presence of empathy in the justice system should be a requirement. Now, when um, Obama was talking about the Supreme Court selection, he said that he would value empathy as being one of the traits of the candidate who would win the position. And the American people um, responded, or I should say the media responded, uh, saying that that is a weak trait, and they misunderstood the difference between sympathy and empathy. That um, empathy was characterized as a weakness, as an effeminate trait, and as one that would predispose uh, a judge to err on the side of compassion for the criminal, rather than addressing the act. And the empathy, in my view, is not in determining whether the, the legality of the act, but in determining the, uh, the, the follow-up behavior. And we use the word punishment, and we very seldom look at um, how we can um, salvage that person and make that person a contributing citizen. We can't do that unless we understand where they came from, which is part of the empathy discussion. Sympathy is um, feeling sorry for someone. And it's not the same motor at all as empathy. Empathy is the whole palette of feelings. It's feeling joyful for someone. It's feeling disappointed for someone. It's feeling nervous for someone. Um, it's a very different thing. And clearly we have our work cut out um, to explain that to different populations. So the criminal justice system could absolutely deal with um, some sort of empathy 101. It's not to say that, that the system hasn't potentially even uh, been a magnet for people who are super empathic. They, they, they are drawn to that field because they do care deeply about justice for the individual and for society. Right. But I think that's it's not been seen as something worthy of studying, just like medicine is only now including um, empathy in, in medical students' experiences. I remember about 10 years ago, I was asked to do grand rounds at a, a major hospital in British Columbia, and they wanted me to speak to the doctors about empathy. Um, so I think we have major systems like education, health, justice. The debate is present now in education. It's not present in justice, and it's beginning in health. Right. And this idea of conflict resolution, there are many restorative justice-type programs that are developing and, and um, all sorts of um, mediation programs. But I think the nub of this is you cannot get to the first stage of conflict resolution unless you have the capacity to take the perspective of the other. And that is the cognitive aspect of empathy. There will be no altruism ever unless you have the capacity to take the perspective of the other. That means that we have to be able to find 
connect our human dots. We have to be able to see that that person who, uh, for, however they are different, that we are the same because we share the same feelings. And that web of human connectivity is part and parcel of empathy. And with that missing in our criminal justice system, you know, the, the Joan Baez song written by Bob Dylan, There But For Fortune Go You or I. Right. In the criminal justice system, the There But For Fortune is the attachment relationship. Right. And many other brutalizing things in life. It doesn't mean we excuse the person. It means we understand the person and our actions show that we do something to um, support some kind of relearning. I've heard you speak really compellingly about media as a, a forum that um, either promotes or discourages empathy. And in, in a sense, we know that media is only a reflection of our world. And so we can't blame the media for what it shows us. But we do also know that that reflection often shows us images that are cruel and dehumanizing that undermine empathy. And I wonder what you think about where we are in working with media and understanding uh, how media can be an asset and 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 where it is a liability and what we can do to make media a more healthy force in our culture. I am completely excited about um, Bill Drayton's focus on media maidens in this empathy initiative. And this is a focus with him globally. And I think it's particularly poignant because Ashoka Fellows uh, whether they deem themselves to be formal empathy fellows or not, I believe that every single Ashoka fellow comes from a base of empathy, that they have been able to take the perspective of uh, people who are blighted by some particular intransigent social problem and that they have cared enough. They've had the ethic of care to commit their lives to doing something about it. So whether they have really acknowledge that or not. Ashoka Fellows, because they're doing such exciting things, they're media magnets. I think um, if they are given the um, ability to reframe um, why and how and what it is they're doing through an empathy lens, I think that we could transform and put another bottom line under the reporting that happens about the amazing initiatives that um, Ashoka Fellows are doing, because if the, the public understands the power of these social innovations, that they are really coming from a base of empathy that's so much good that you can turn on a light switch where there was never light, that you could turn on a tap where there was never water, that you know, all of these amazing things that you can flush a toilet where there was never a toilet. The, the, the brilliance of Ashoka Fellows in harnessing their caring and their intelligence to change the world, that if the, um, the media who do write about Fellows all the time, if they understood that there is a whole slice here of this story that is about empathy, and that the fellows, if you go back in their world, you know, when we um, interview Ashoka fellows, we always ask them about their childhood. And 
I always push for the early childhood, you will find in, in many, many cases a huge connection to family, a huge empowerment, a huge role model influence. In fact, I would say many, many Ashoka fellows come from a base of love and support that enable them to do these wonderful things in the world. There are some Ashoka fellows who came from the worst kind of adversity and were jettisoned into fighting back on behalf of others who had suffered as they did. But on balance, the Ashoka Fellows profiles reflect a hugely supportive family where their main influence was one of their parents. So there comes back to the attachment relationship. But I think the best hope we have of tipping the world is engaging the media to follow the people who are in the process of doing it. And I referenced the Ashoka Fellows and other social innovators who who might be in the same, working in the same vineyard. That's terrific. It's it, it, the, the glass is half full and we, we the media is often only just showing us the empty spaces. And if we can focus on, on the good things that are happening in the world, we'll get a sense of the power of those good things to take hold. I think that's very true. And I think that in this in the arena of social media there's also while there is this danger that everyone sp- spends all their time looking at screens there also is the possibility of connection if it's managed well um, oh this so, yeah. huge i think the social media is brilliant yeah because you know the speed at which you can share a good idea right uh is amazing and i absolutely um love the way that uh, the young Ashoka fellows are are using it to the advantage not just of their project but to everybody's project. So I think we're in an amazing time in that we can disseminate concepts and ideas and engage dialogues um, at a level that has not been possible before. And when we're looking at an everyone a change maker world, everyone can participate in the social media. So. I, I think it's extraordinarily powerful. And, you know, if you look at David Bornstein's Dowser, it's, it's all these good news stories. And, yes, you know, your initial um, introduction to this part of our discussion was, is the media reflecting what we want to hear? Or I think uh, we're all part and parcel of this. Right. And there is an element of voyeurism in our makeup yeah. that... Um, is it makes you know these kind of bad news stories in some way um, of interest to us, um, but so I know that you know Pollyanna approach isn't going to be useful. Right. I do think <laughs> that uh, people don't just read the obituaries; right. they are very inspired to read a good news story. And um, it makes us feel good so that papers wouldn't probably sell unless there was a little bit of, um, you know, uh, blood on the front page. But I think there is a lot more space for editorial-like columns that would highlight the good things that are going on in the world. Right. And if and if you have an empathy lens, then even when there is some bad news reported, you can see it through the potential for something better to happen. I think that's true also. I have to ask you, one of the things that's in the popular culture right at this moment is a novel and a movie called The Hunger Games. I don't know. Have you read or seen this? 
I haven't, but everybody's told me I have to. Yeah, so, you know, the premise is it's about a future society in which children are cast into an arena uh, to kill each other as part of a sporting event. It's actually a a horrific premise. But it ends up, I think, to be in some ways, and my kids read the, read the book in school, ironically, you know, they read the book in school, and we had a very powerful conversation about the struggle of the main character with this and how really empathy is part of what is the countervailing force in the novel. So, you know, I think you... I think that there is always the chance, even when and when we do have, you know, we have a glass that's half full and half empty. There's always that chance to take the story and talk about well, what could be different here. It, well, I I am going to see that film, but I I like your point that um, no matter how horrific uh, an actual story or a fiction might be. Every single thing that happens is an opportunity for us to think with an empathic lens. Yes. And, um, you know, we can't protect our children. I think in a way it's better to confront uh, the things that are out there rather than wrap them up in uh, cotton wool. Um, And I think if children have the opportunity to discuss things and if parents are supportive in that and if schools are open, to dealing with the popular press and not just the scholastic press, that children will have far more confidence and far more security in talking out loud about the things that worry them. We're coming to the end of our time, and one of the things that I heard you talk about, which was such a beautiful thought, and I wonder if you could share something with us on these lines to close us out, was about empathy and aging. And you talked about how the heart is elastic and can expand as you get older. And I I was just struck that's such a beautiful image of the expanding heart. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes we see the opposite. We see people who perhaps get more crusty and and more closed as they get older. So do, do you have any thoughts about this? This is something that I think is universal for people that they are aging and they are moving forward in their career. How do we keep an elastic heart as we age and move forward in our work? Well, I I think that elastic metaphor came from my mother. Um, We had many children in my birth family, and we used to tease my mother, who was endlessly patient and always fun-loving, and we'd say, who do you love the best? And when there was a new baby coming, well, are you still going to love me? (laughs) You know, and uh, my mother used to say, The child I love the best on any given day is the child who needs me most. And the heart is like an elastic. It expands to make room Mm. for every gift of every child or every person who comes into our life. I attribute that concept to my mother. But I think as we age, um, if we do not stay in fertile relationships and our friends die and our partners may die and our children may move away or we may not have children. And because uh, if we retire, if work is so much a huge, all-encompassing part of our life, when you retire, you lose all those relationships. So that many people hit the 70s and they are lonely. And I think the, the whole concept of being in relationship usually You know, we hold arms, we hold hands, we touch one another. And there are so many elderly people who are absolutely starved for touch 
and starved for solicitude, that there is nobody really who says, how are you today and means it. So I think um, we need to keep the kindling going and make sure that every single person who walks on the earth doesn't walk alone. And we have the capacity to do that. It's just how do we choose to organize our systems in the world? Do we include everybody? Do we set a place at the table for the person who's coming in the wheelchair, the hot chair or the rocking chair? <laughs> do we set the place for everybody? Do we look around and see, well, who's missing? And who are the invisible people? Well, the invisible people are those who are very elderly and those who are sick. And actually those who are very young and who aren't out and about. So I think a society can do a whole lot about becoming an empathic society by realizing that we have to look very carefully for um, those who can't look out for themselves, maybe. And it's very hard to ask to be loved. It's something that we all want and we all need, but we don't know how to ask for it. Mm. And we don't raise ourselves and we don't run our institutions in such a way that we recognize our human needs and frailties and that lifelong empathy is something that will keep us connected one to the other. Mm. Well, Mary, thank you so much. These are very inspiring thoughts and there are about 50 questions that I have that I we didn't have time to get to. So I'm hoping that we can do this again as the uh, empathy movement moves forward and uh, have you back on the program. And I want to thank you today. And uh, in the spirit of empathy, sending you a big Skype hug. Oh, well, thank <laughs> you. I, I appreciate that, David, and I send it back. Okay. Thanks, Mary. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.